0: If you can stay in Mark uh, chapter 14, as we continue our study of the book of Mark. Mark is now turning his attention to the events where the whole book has been headed since day one. The death and resurrection of Jesus, who's the Son. We see in verse 1 that the chief priest... Scribes are trying to figure out how to arrest Jesus without causing an uproar from the people, many of whom view Jesus favorably. We see that in verses one and two. In verse 10, at the end of this story, we see that Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, has reached out to the religious leaders and he is willing to betray Jesus, and they're pretty excited about this. And sandwiched in the middle, of the enemies of Jesus attempting to get rid of him, we have this story of Jesus being anointed at Bethany. And in this anointing, we, we learn a lot, I think, about what it looks like to follow Jesus. This is a major theme in the book of Mark. Mark. You've got to understand who Jesus is. That's the first eight chapters are sort of focused on that. Understanding who Jesus is and what he's going to do. Then in the second half of the book, Jesus and Mark is speaking to us about what does it look like to follow this Jesus who died for you. And this woman who anoints Jesus at Bethany shows us dramatically what it looks like. To be a follower of Jesus Christ. And of course that's what we're trying to do at Stonehill. To help all of us become more dedicated followers of Jesus. Not only here and around the world. And this story gives us a helpful picture of what that looks like. So in order to see this picture of following Jesus. We need to ask and answer three questions. Number one, what do we learn about this extravagant act of discipleship that this woman does. We need to learn something about that extravagant gift. Number number two, we need to understand what motivated this extravagant act of discipleship. And thirdly, we need to ask the question, what extravagant act of discipleship is God asking you to do today? So what do we learn about this extravagant act of discipleship this is the first question here and according to verse 3 Jesus is at Bethany which is just on the backside of the Mount of Olives. Jesus is in the house of Simon the leper we're told. It's interesting Simon's a pretty common name then but since his name is associated with Simon the leper it, 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 we're not sure but it, it it wouldn't be surprising if Simon the leper could very well mean that Simon had been healed of leprosy by Jesus earlier. We're told that they are reclining at table, which means they are eating together, as would have been the custom there in first century uh, Palestine. They're having a meal together. And a woman comes in with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. Uh, The alabaster would be the container, and this container contains a very expensive perfume. Nard would almost uh, very likely have been imported, possibly from India, but it would have been a very expensive perfume. She breaks the neck of the container and pours it out over the head of Jesus. This very well could have been an heirloom that had been passed down to this woman in her family. It's possible she could have carried th- th- this perfume you know, with a little, um, uh, you know, like a rope or, or some kind of twine that held uh, the alabaster flask, and she would carry it around her neck, and then she broke the neck, pours it all over Jesus. Some in the dinner party are offended by this extravagant act, they think it's a waste. The value of the perfume was 300 denarii, we're told, as we've just read. Which would have nearly equaled a year's salary for a laborer. So in put it in our terms, this was potentially, at the very minimum, a $30,000 extravagant pouring out of perfume onto Jesus. $30,000. Some of the guests are critiquing this gift because they calculate this perfume could have been sold and proceeds given to the poor. And these inward indignant thoughts spill out into a public rebuke of this woman. Yeah, those are the people who always ruin all the dinner parties. Jesus responds. Verse 6. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Jesus defends the woman. This woman's extravagant gift is a beautiful act of love, according to Jesus. It's beautiful. It's 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 an act of love and devotion to Jesus himself. What what are we learning about this extravagant gift? Well, we're learning that this extravagant, lavish gift, $30,000 potentially, was poured out in Jesus. It was for Jesus. It was to him. This, This woman sacrifices for and to Jesus... The extravagance was not for the woman, per se. It was all to him, to anoint him with this lavish gift. The other thing we learn about this extravagant gift is that this gift could not necessarily be measured by human methods of evaluation. Oh, the indignant dinner guests are using human calculations to evaluate the gift. It's a bunch of accountants run amok. Sorry accountants, we love you. They're calculating the effectiveness of the gift, the value of the gift, it could have fed the poor. They're trying to use a human evaluation to say, this gift, what, I mean what was it? It was just this lavish pouring out of perfume and, and after a while the smell would have gone and it would have been over. What good was it? What, what effect did this have on anyone else? verse 7 Jesus defends the woman again he says for you always have the poor with you and whenever you want you can do good for them but you will not always have me Jesus is not denigrating giving to the poor we read the passage that he's quoting from in Deuteronomy 15 earlier in our service All believers, all believers, all followers of God are commanded to give to the poor. We all have that responsibility and that doesn't go away. But Jesus is saying that in light of who he is and what he's about to do for us and for this woman dying on a cross, her extravagance is justified. In a very real sense while we must be open-handed to the poor and we should be Following Jesus involves a series of commitments to him. In following him that do include the poor, but are not exclusively to helping the poor. And so what we see about this extravagant gift is that in following Jesus, it's appropriate for us to extravagantly lavish on Jesus, to Jesus, eye-popping sacrifice is commensurate with who he is and what he's done. And the reality is when you do that, it very well means that even other believers, I mean, it's the disciples, probably some of them, certainly we find in John 12, Judas Iscariot is the one complaining the most about this. Even Jesus' own followers are criticizing this woman's extravagant, lavish. Gift. So you can make this kind of commitment to Jesus in all kinds of ways and maybe even other believers around you won't understand it. They may even critique you. They may even say this is wasteful. This is ineffective. And Jesus saying that this kind of extravagance is appropriate for the followers to Jesus Christ to perform for him. Well, that's the answer to the first question. What do we learn about this extravagant, extravagant gift? But there's a second question, it's very important. What motivated this extravagant outpouring of love and discipleship by this woman? It's interesting, I'm not gonna turn here. John 12 mentions what looks like a, the same event. And that woman is named in John 12, her name is Mary, the sister of Lazarus. And there's some, some chronological issues that make you wonder if this is a, you know, two events or not. I kind of think you can harmonize the chronology differences between the Gospel of John and the Gospel of Mark. So this is a woman who, who saw Jesus raise her brother from the dead and clearly understood that there was this future resurrection that awaited all the followers of Jesus. What is obvious from this text is that the outpouring of this extravagant, lavish love to Jesus was not done by this woman to earn God's love. It was not to merit him. It was not to say, oh, I'm going to do this, and then you have to accept me, God. No, it's absolutely not true. There's no indication of the text of that. The woman's extravagant and sacrificial gift is poured out on Jesus in anticipation of what Jesus will do in his death and resurrection for that woman and for us. Notice what Jesus says in verse 6. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. In verse 7, Jesus goes on to say, yes, you need to care for the poor, but they will always be with you. You won't always have me. Verse 8, Jesus said, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. The motivation for this extravagant gift is anticipating that Jesus will die for this woman. I think she understands it. Jesus hasn't been silent throughout the book of Mark. We've seen he has often said, I must die and then I will rise again. If If this is Mary, according to John 12, she saw Jesus raise her brother and talk about the resurrection and the life and that his resurrection was what he would do for all who put their faith and confidence and believed in Jesus Christ. This woman, understanding, I think, what Jesus is about to do for her, seeing the grace of God that will be displayed in the broken body of Jesus who will die for her sins, this has motivated her in the only logical way that that she could by, by lavishly pouring out her resources to Jesus, for Jesus, in honor of Jesus in light of what he's done for her. And what it's about to do for her. Someone has grasped the reality. The gift is not to earn God's favor. The gift is an anticipation of his grace. Which reminds me of Romans 12.1. Where Paul himself says. When you view the mercies of God. What's the only logical response? Lay your life down as a sacrifice to him. So if you look at this story and conclude, boy, I better make some kind of extravagant gift tonight to earn God's love, you've missed the whole point of the story. You've turned the story upside down. This gift is given because of the grace and mercy of Jesus. This woman is overwhelmed by what Jesus is going to do for her. And the only logical thing in response to this great grace is to extravagantly sacrifice her great treasure and pour it out to Jesus. In gratitude, and humility for the incredible grace poured out on us through his death and resurrection. I think sometimes we can forget In in thinking about Jesus, uh, we we can forget that, I don't know, we can forget what he's done for us, we try to earn his love, we get confused about grace, we get our eyes off of grace. I'm reading a good book, I haven't finished this book, so if the second half of the book is not good, I'm sorry. But the first half is great. It's by Andrew Clavin, who's a secular Jew who became a Christian. I think he's involved with the Daily Wire. He wrote a book called The Truth and Beauty How the Lives and Works of English Greatest Poets Point the Way to a Deeper Understanding of the Words of Jesus. If you like poetry, you should read it. If you don't like poetry, you should read it. And maybe you'll learn to appreciate poetry a little more. The author is describing a conversation uh, he's having with his son about the Sermon on the Mount. Andrew Clobbin is saying to his son, I don't understand the Sermon on the Mount. I can't quite get the sense of it clearly, he writes. And he says, when I do understand Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, I'm not, I don't even know if I totally agree with it. He says, I feel like what the Sermon on the Mount is saying is, blessed are you when your life is awful because in heaven, trust me, it's going to be great. And that doesn't make sense to me. I thought, you know, Jesus is something about the real, the here and now. And he says, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, don't resist an evil person. Well, that's fine, but should I really resist, and not resist an evil person who tries to attack me and my family? I, what is going on here? So they're having this conversation. I think they're down in Miami, Florida. Andrew's talking to his son, I just don't get it. I feel like the pieces of the Sermon on the Mount are there. Andrew says, I, I believe the Gospels, <laughs> I, but, but I can't put this together. And Spencer, Andrew's son, looks at him and said, Dad, maybe the problem is, is that you're trying to understand a philosophy instead of trying to get to know a man clavin said it clicked if you are going to take this story and sort of theologize it too much right and say well you know was you know should the woman have really poured out this perfume she could have used it for the poor and you sort of analyze it it's almost like you're forgetting that Jesus is a real person He's a human being, fully human being, but he's fully God. He's an actual person who is about to die for uh, this woman's sins and then rise again and bring her to new life. This is a person who is personally rescuing her from the biggest problem that she has, dealing with her own sin and death that's coming. And since it's a real person who's going to do that for her, how can you not then humbly thank that person with an extravagant display of gratitude. What motivated this extravagant outpouring of love? Discipleship, it's the grace of Jesus Christ. It's the person of Christ, it's what he did. We all do this humanly, right? Have you ever thrown a party for a loved one? Some of you bought balloons, what a waste. Some of you went to the store and got helium balloons. Guess what? They've, they've eventually sinked down. What a waste. You bought a bunch of food. It was consumed quickly. What a waste. You've given presents, you know, extravagant presents. What a waste. No, it's not a waste. You're honoring a person. And when you think about Jesus, what he did personally to pull you up out of your sin and the death that, 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 that was on you because of your sin sacrifices his whole life how can you not humbly lavishly extravagantly pour all of your life out for him in every way which leads me to the last question what extravagant gift of discipleship is god asking you to do Well, the effect of this woman's extravagant gift is still reverberating us today 2,000 years later. Jesus said in verse 9, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, in the whole world what she has done will be told in memory of her. We fulfilled that prophecy this morning by reading this text and talking about it. 2,000 years later, we're still talking about this one sacrificial, lavish, extravagant act of love. And her sacrificial act did not feed the poor. And and, as the dinner guests pointed out. They were correct about that. But it's hard to quantify. What what, what value did this have? How was this effective? The reality is no metrics can be applied. To the effectiveness of her sacrificial act. It's the extravagant sacrifice itself. That demonstrate us what. Our lives ought to be like it's not simply that we need to do something extravagant for for God is that everything we do should be motivated by the grace of this person Jesus fully God and fully man every act that we do should be motivated by that grace as that woman's was which will propel us to do all kinds of things sacrificially and lavishly for Christ now I know some of us, you look at this kind of thing and say, well that woman gave $30,000 away, that was pretty big. I think a lot of us think about big sacrifices and maybe some of you are being called by God to make a big sacrifice. I love the story, uh, Nick Ripkin in the Insanity of God book, it's another great book. It's about uh, a pastor who has uh, been arrested in his country and has now been taken to prison. The uh, uh, his wife and his children are now hungry. There's no means of support. They've also been moved. They're not in jail, but they're living uh, away from where they are. And they're not doing well. They're not, they don't have enough food. They're hungry. Their lives are threatened as well. And one of the deacons gets waked up in the middle of the night by what he thinks is God. And the, 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 God seems to tell this deacon, get out of bed, harness your horse... Hitch the horse to the sled, load up all the extra vegetables that the church has harvested, the meat and the other food, and drive it to the pastor's wife and her children because they're hungry. The deacon responds logically with metrics. I can't do that. It's below zero outside. My horse might freeze. I might freeze. I'm not sure I can make it. It's a blizzard out there. And the deacon hears sort of the voice of God, you need to go. Deacon argues with the Lord. He's following metrics, logic. Wait a minute, there's wolves. My horse may may freeze. I may not make it, then I'll be eaten. Deacon said, I'm not sure I can make it, but even if I make it, I, I might not make it back. And what the deacon says, he thought the Spirit of God told him, you don't have to come back, you just have to go. Well, that's a pretty big sacrifice and he does it and the pastor's family is spared and refurbished so to speak I think it would be wrong though to think about this story and ask yourself what big thing do I need to do for God because oftentimes it's the smaller sacrifices that should be motivated by God's grace that make all the difference in the world I can remember vividly as a young pastor being called out to uh, the hospital, where uh, some people in, in the church I was was working in at the time, their adult daughter who had children. She was like 35 years old. She was dying of cancer, and I was ministering to that woman's mom and dad. It was tragic. She was leaving behind children. Cancer was brutal. The pain was immense, and the parents were beside themselves. I went to the hospital, young pastor, not sure what to do. The, the waiting room is filled with family and friends, just grieving, just being with the family in their grief. And I just, I sat there, and I wasn't sure what to say. I wasn't sure what I should say. I didn't even know what to say. The grief was so palpable. I wasn't sure what to do, and so I just sat there. I sat in that waiting room for about three hours i just felt like the lord said just be here i said three sentences in three hours none of them profound like i'm sorry can we pray i'm so sorry that's about all i said and i went home and i i felt completely inadequate i felt like well i, I was there but what did i do Months later, I would find out from various members of the family that my being there was the greatest thing that happened. It, so, it felt so much support. And the wisdom that you shared was so amazing. I'm like, uh, what? Do I have a twin I don't know about? Spending three hours there was, was a little bit of an extravagant gift of time. I'm busy. I had many other things to do. I didn't feel like I did much. I didn't think I was that effective. But I felt like the grace of God I should do that and guess what God God used it some of you it's not the big thing that God you to do it's something very small sacrificial I do feel for the introverts in this church because in just a few minutes you're going to go out into an atrium filled with people I know it's a nightmare for some of you you've told me but for you to go out in the atrium and just talk to one person. Or if you're an introvert, just, just texting someone and saying you're praying for him. It's really hard for you to do it. It's a sacrifice. Why? Because of the grace of Christ you do that for someone else. I think the other thing we need to understand about the gift is you can't always measure the effectiveness or the metrics of the gift itself. Just like the woman who poured out the perfume remember speaking with Woody Lewis. Woody Lewis is one of our global partners. He still works in France. He's in, living in the States now, but he goes to France. He's a graduate of Princeton University. He could have done a lot of things, I think, in life. I remember talking to Woody Lewis about why did you feel God was leading you to France and tell me about that. And he told me, well, I felt God was leading me to France. And I said, how was that? And he says, well, I felt like when I made that decision, I made a decision not to be as effective as I could if I had stayed in the States and ministered in English. Because I had to learn a new language. I had to move. I tried to write in French. And of course, he has it at the end of of his career. He's writing books in French. But he says... He looked at me and he says, God didn't call me to be effective. He called me to be faithful and to make whatever sacrifices I need to make. Whether it was effective or not is immaterial. The reality is because Jesus died for me and rose again, he directed me to go to France and I went to France knowing full well I probably would not be able to accomplish as much if I had stayed and worked in my own language of English. That's what we're talking about. Don't fall into the trap to read this story and think you've gotta do something gigantic or even effective. You need to be faithful to pour out your life motivated by grace and pour out a sacrifice, a lavish sacrifice commensurate with the grace that Christ has poured out. And that's what we're doing, which we're going to see in just a minute, is what our baptismal candidates will be saying this morning. We're going to be baptizing uh, one in just a minute, four at the 1130 service. And all of these baptismal candidates are saying to us publicly, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm trusting in the grace of Christ by the power of God, I'm going to live for Christ and by the power of God, because of the grace he's given me, I'm willing to go and do and be directed by Christ wherever he leads me, whatever he asks me to do. So when I pray and then we'll have our baptism. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for each of us. We all need to see your grace, we all need to see Your love, we all need to see your mercy. And when we look at you, we're motivated to pour out our lives for you. I pray that we would be faithful to the things that you prompt us to do. I pray that we would not be overly worried about whether or not they will be massively effective. But I pray that we would be focused on faithfulness. I pray that we would see that the little things that we we do should all be motivated by grace. And I pray that we would live lives knowing the lavish love that was poured out for us in Jesus. That because of grace, we would turn around and pour out our resources for Christ in all kinds of ways as you lead us. We pray this in your name. Amen.